0: This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is Steve Humble with another Humble Perspective. I noticed the last time, just as I was setting up to record this one, that I forgot to hook up my new microphone. I apologize if there was more background noise than there has been in some of these other recent podcasts but at least on my machine it didn't sound too bad and it was a long chapter so i will try not to do that again in this episode i'm once again reading from my book for such a time as this one man's spiritual journey chapter six hungry for more Coffee houses were popular in those days. These were nothing upscale like the present-day coffee shops where people go to buy exotic blends and expensive coffee paraphernalia. There were no comfortable seating areas and fancy desserts, at least not in any I ever visited. These coffee houses were usually located near universities or in areas of town where young people hung out. I never knew of one that offered any coffee other than the old regular brands such as Maxwell House or Folgers. In those days I knew nothing about flavored coffees, let alone espressos, lattes, mochas, and cappuccinos. Some did offer a few types of tea and maybe some exotic fruit juices such as papaya juice or guava juice. Large spools around which The lines used by electric or telephone companies had been rolled, often served as tables. Folding chairs were pretty much standard seating. Usually there were candles on the table and low lights. The walls were often decorated with posters, the content determined by the interest of those who ran the particular coffee house. It wasn't unusual for there to be a rack that held newspapers or magazines. In a coffee house run by Christians, posters consisted of scripture or some religious theme, and the written material was often, most often evangelistic in tone. Secular coffee houses would feature material representing various other countercultural lifestyles. At one end of the room there would usually be a small stage from which some poet might read or a musician, maybe even a band, might play and sing. Much of the time, Patrons talked quietly at the tables as much as they listened to the performers. Some would drop in for a short time, others might stay the whole evening. I enjoyed visiting a number of Christian coffee houses around the cities. Frankly, there was something about the counterculture that appealed to me. On one level, I am sure that first the draw was connected to the rebellious spirit at work in me. However, there was also something in me that was, in a good way, resisting the status quo and wanting to connect with what God was doing in my generation. One coffee house was a bit different. On Friday and Saturday night, the King's Inn, a smorgasbord restaurant owned by believers, became a coffee house in an effort to evangelize teens. It was not unusual to have 100 to 150 teens there at any given time on those nights. It was at the King's Inn that I first ran into house church people. These particular people often mentioned the author Watchman Nee. Most of them were quite negative toward organized churches, and several had serious reservations about the the legitimacy of my own call to work in a denominational church. I was hungry enough for reality in Christ and for the early expressions of the faith I was seeing in the New Testament that I kept coming around in spite of feeling that some considered me unenlightened or even somewhat suspect. Because of the sectarian attitude of some of those who profess to be non-sectarian New Testament Christians, I had no desire to read anything by knee. Before long, however, Wes Long, the lay leader at Waite Park Wesleyan, mentioned Watchman Knee's work to me, especially recommending his book The Normal Christian Life. I read the book and began to look for others by knee. Not long after the Gothard seminar, Pastor Hauser recommended Watchman Nee's book Spiritual Authority, which I found and devoured. Ironically, a couple years later, I finally found a copy of Nee's book, The Normal Christian Church Life, the book that these sectarian non-sectarians had often referred to, seemingly holding it up pretty close to scripture in terms of truth. I started reading with the preface in which Ni revealed his great reluctance to produce an English edition of the book. In the book, he presented the biblical insights and principles behind the way that he and his co-workers had founded churches in China. He was obviously concerned that the book not be misunderstood and misapplied. He ended the preface with these words, One of the prayers I have offered in connection with this book. Is that the Lord should keep it from those who oppose and would use it as a chart for attack, and also from those who agree and would use it as a manual for service. I dread the latter far more than the former. Thankfully, in spite of the fact that some of the people who spoke to me about Watchman Nee were among those who seemed to be attempting to use his book as a manual, there were others such as West Long and Pastor Hauser who helped me overcome my negative reaction. I can hardly overemphasize the way in which the Lord used Knee's books in my life over the next several years. Through Knee, I came to see in a fresh way the place of the cross in my life. I began to desire to live life directed by the Holy Spirit working through my spirit, rather than live by the power of my will, or of my mind, or my emotions, or my bodily passions. I wanted to be broken from dependence on human strength and gifts and knowledge so that I could live in dependence on the power of God. Through me, nee, I began to see more clearly God's ways of dealing with a person and his ways of preparing the human vessel to give God's life to others. Knee added to my hunger to see the church today be like the church I read about in the Bible. As yet, I have never been part of an actual house church movement. But even today I am convinced that there is something in the basic principles and patterns that are essential to the life and effective ministry of the present day church. While at Wake Park, I not only began to see that God was at work in house churches, but I also became convinced that He was doing a significant work in some of the mainline denominations through the Charismatic Renewal. Although I have never personally identified with the charismatic movement as such, I was deeply influenced and eventually became part, a part of two of the works that grew from it. But That was future. While at Waite Park, my knowledge of the charismatic renewal was for the fo- most part gained from written reports and testimonies. There were several in the Waite Park church who identified themselves as charismatics. I respected most of them, but a few of them disturbed me because they periodically missed our gatherings in order to go to some Pentecostal or Charismatic church, claiming that they needed to get recharged from time to time. A number of the summer Sunday night speakers that Pastor Hauser brought in were Charismatic, including a Lutheran evangelist and an Episcopalian psychiatrist. One of those speakers was a Catholic priest. If anyone had tried to tell me then that only a few years later I would be working alongside Tim Nolan in a Christian community that was born in the context of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, I would never have believed it. We certainly had no inkling of that future when Pastor Hauser invited Patricia and me to go with him, his wife, and the Longs to attend a Catholic Charismatic Prayer Meeting held in the gymnasium of Regina High School in South Minneapolis. We attended a couple prayer meetings at Regina during those years. At first I was simply curious about the phenomenon of Catholics claiming to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I certainly did not go expecting to see several hundred people enthusiastically singing, worshiping, praying, prophesying, testifying, and listening to simple gospel messages, but that's what I saw. The metal folding chairs were arranged in circles around an area about 15 feet in diameter. The speakers and the musicians used microphones that stood in the center area. The songs were mostly choruses and folk style songs. The most memorable times were when spontaneously all around the room people would begin to sing usually very quietly in tongues. Each one sang in his or her own prayer language to his or her own tune. The individuals were so the individual voices were so subdued that a listener could hardly be sure that they were using tongues. But the voices rose up together in haunting harmonious sound that brought to mind what it must have been like to hear some medieval choir in some great cathedral. At one of the meetings a young man went up to the microphone to share testimony. At first there was nothing wrong with these words per se, But something about his sharing seemed discordant with the spirit of the gathering. The discord was subtle, however, until he declared, I have seen the Messiah and his name is the Maharaji. He was talking about a 14-year-old guru from India who was popular at the time. Almost before the speaker had the name out, Patricia jumped to her feet, hands raised high in the air, and began to sing, Jesus is Lord. Soon the whole group was declaring the Lordship of Jesus in song along with her. Meanwhile, two brothers escorted the young man from the room. Patricia's action at that time was unplanned, and to a degree astonishing, since she was very skeptical about the charismatic dimension. The prayer meeting was sponsored by a group called the Servants of the Light. In our wildest thoughts, we would not have guessed that this very group would become the community of which we would later become members another seemingly insignificant occurrence that turned about out to be vitally important was that dr hanlock <coughs> excuse me dr dan hadlock's sister and her friend came to visit when we invited the two ladies over for dinner at our home in order to get acquainted they told us about their involvement in a Washington, D.C. Christian community. That group was associated with Labrie Fellowship, the ministry of Dr. Francis Schaefer and his wife, Edith, which they had begun in Switzerland. I don't believe that I had even heard of Dr. Schaefer prior to that time. The women gave me a copy of his book, The God Who Is There. It may have been the most difficult book I had read up to that time. I certainly did not understand some parts of it, but I read it as quickly as I could, mostly to be able to tell the women that I had done so and in order to try to converse with them. Little did I know that these ladies had introduced me to a way of thinking and of seeing the world that I would be digesting, using, and then propagating for the rest of my life. In November 1973, at my invitation, John Meadows returned to Minneapolis in order to attend the Basic Youth Conflict Seminar with Patricia and me. Again word spread by word of mouth only, and the second time that the seminar was held in the Twin Cities, there were 16,000 who attended. Repeating the seminar was certainly worthwhile, however it was not the most significant thing of the week for me. John had brought three tapes that he thought I should hear. Copies of copies of copies, barely audible on my small cassette player. Here we were attending a seminar with teaching from 7 to 10 p.m. Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. on Friday, and 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. on Saturday. I should have had my fill of teaching, but I started the first tape, and I could not stop listening to them until I'd been through them all. On lunch and dinner breaks on Friday and Saturday, I would be in my seat, tape player pressed up to my ear, devouring these messages. I introduced John to Bill Gother's message that week. In turn, John introduced me to the teaching of Bob Mumford, Charles Simpson, and Derek Prince. I heard something fresh in these tapes. The messages gripped my heart, both confirming things I'd been seeing and hearing, and also opening my eyes to new things in the Word of God. Yet once again, I had no idea of the future, no idea that the messages of these teachers were opening a significant part of my destiny. Bob's message, Shadow or Substance, had to do with the fact that the body of Christ is not something mystical, but rather that it consist of real relationships with real people, relationships ordained by God and lived out in obedience to God's word, relationships that work through conflict, relationships based on acceptance of one another, warts and all, relationships in which we grow toward maturity in Christ together to the end that our relationships become a true reflection of the life of the triune God. Charles talked about the church in the home. He challenged me to see that the family was a microcosm of the larger church. He began to make me aware that if there's not integrity in the relationship between husbands and wives and between parents and children, then there cannot be integrity in the household of faith, the church, either. These two messages touched that hunger in me for true biblical reality. They helped me begin to see far more clearly that church is not something religious or spiritual in some weird way. Rather, I became more clearly aware that God wanted the qualities of the other world, the invisible world, to be worked out in the everyday relationships and situations in this world. I had begun to be aware of the reality of the occult realm and the influence of demonic activity in this present world. However. Derek's message, God's Atomic Weapon, the Power of the Blood, brought more clarity to the nature of spiritual warfare and direct demonic influence. He introduced me to the practice of confessing the truth according to scripture as a weapon against the devil. Within a couple years I would need this truth, not as a concept, but as a weapon in a very real struggle to overcome during my own time of trial. I believe it was John who signed me up to receive New Wine Magazine, the monthly publication of Christian Growth Ministries, of which these three men, along with another teacher, Don Basham, had become the overseers. I received my first issue about that time. I had never seen a magazine packed full of biblical teaching so relevant and alive as were the articles in New Wine. By the way, New Wine Magazine, all the issues are available on the internet now at CSMPublishing.org under the heading Publications and New Wine Magazine. It is well worth going there and reading. That teaching, along with tapes from Christian Growth Ministries and from the individual teachers, soon became a hugely significant part of the foundation for my life, my vision, and my ministry. I was not growing and changing only because of outside influences such as Nee Gothard and Christian Growth Ministries, however. The work of the Spirit in the church, the influence and example of Pastor Hauser, the sharing around the scriptures with the small men's group, and the dynamics of our youth work were significant. Along with that, the scriptures themselves were more living and active to me than at any previous time and possibly any later time in my life. What I was hearing from others rang true with what I was seeing in God's word. While at Waite Park, I began to read the scriptures more avidly than ever before. As I've already written, a significant change had begun when I first read Good News for Modern Man back in Bible College. The number of translations that were ready available in those days was quite limited. However, while in Minneapolis, I purchased my first copies of the New American Standard Bible and of the Modern Language Bible, the so-called Berkeley version. I also picked up a small volume consisting of a paraphrase of the New Testament epistles titled, Letters to Street Christians, written by quote, two brothers from Berkeley, unquote, who were members of the Christian World Liberation Front, a ministry based on the UCLA Berkeley campus. I found that changing translations from time to time stirred up my initiative to read and gave me a fresh perspective on what I read, and it still does. I also learned that comparing translations to one another often added to my understanding of specific passages. During that time, I also started a pattern of reading that I kept up as much as possible for most of the 1970s. I think I may have first heard of the method in a booklet on discipleship published by David Wilkerson's ministry. Each day I tried to read five chapters in the Old Testament, five chapters in the New Testament, five chapters in Psalms, and one chapter in Proverbs. If I had been able to read this way every single day, I would have read Psalms and Proverbs every month, the New Testament in a bit less than two months, and the Old Testament in seven or eight months. I was quite consistent with the readings in Psalms and Proverbs and continued that pattern much of the time for fifteen to twenty years. It usually took me three or four months to read the New Testament and about a year to read the Old Testament. I had never read the Bible through, from cover to cover, until I started this discipline. By the late 1970s I had read through the Bible, entire Bible several times. One of the great benefits that I derived from this method of reading was that I began to see the unity of the scripture. Often I found myself reading the same theme on the same day from more than one section of the scripture. It was not unusual on a given day to come across a passage in Psalms that was clearly related to the very material I was reading elsewhere in the Old Testament that day. The New Testament reading often referred to or even quoted something I had read that same day in the Old Testament or in the Psalms. Another benefit gained by reading this way was that I became far more familiar with where to find specific scriptures. This benefit was in line with a goal I had set for myself in the summer of 1970, the summer before I left Circleville to study at Marion College. The previous semester, a few brothers, including John Meadows and me, had formed a team that led a Thursday night Bible study for some teenage boys who were being held in a kind of halfway house on the Ohio State Fairgrounds. Most of these guys had been in the Boys Industrial School as juvenile offenders. Most were being held at the fairgrounds as a halfway stop between full incarceration at the Boys Industrial School and full release. One evening after the Bible study ended at about 9 p.m., we escorted the guys back to their dorm. One of the counselors, in other words a guard without a gun, had come by and listened in on our study that evening. After the boys had gone into the dorm, this man began to challenge what we had been doing. A philosophy major at Ohio State University, he was deeply concerned that our approach, rather than helping, would be harmful to the guys. In his opinion, the boys had gotten into trouble in the first place mostly because they were hopeless. He said they'd been told all their lives that they were no good and did not have a good sense of self-worth. He believed, therefore, that for us to come in and tell the boys that they were sinners who needed saving would only deepen their hopelessness and low self-esteem, thus their problems could only increase. We engaged the man in conversation for well over an hour that evening. He obviously started out fully convinced that he needed to get through to us. He must have become at least somewhat interested in what we had to say because we all agreed to return the next evening to take up the conversation again. During our conversation the second evening, one of the brothers quoted a verse of scripture. He said something like, somewhere in the Bible Jesus said, you must be born again. It struck me immediately that the quotation would probably have been far more effective in this situation if the brother had been able to look up the quotation and show it to the man. The context of Jesus' statement, of course, is his encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The very discussion in which we find John 3.16, probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. Here was a senior in Bible college who did not know where to find such a key passage and did not know the context of the verse John 3.16. Although I had known that particular reference as I reflected on the evening, I became deeply convicted that I must learn to know the Bible thoroughly and be able to use it at a moment's notice in any situation. Reading the Bible in the manner I've described above was a huge help in making this conviction become closer to reality. Reading larger sections of scripture helped me to get the flow of the content in the individual books. I began to make a specific effort to remember the essential theme of each chapter as it fit into the development of the particular book. After a time, I noticed that quite often, Upon hearing a Bible phrase or verse, I could match it mentally with the book and the chapter because of the way it fit into the themes that I had learned. It got so that some brothers jokingly called me a walking concordance. It was not unusual for people to look to me for help if they wanted to know where to find a particular passage. Since the early 1980s, I have not practiced this discipline consistently, however, even today. I find that I can still remember where many passages are in the Bible and quite often I can locate them rather easily, even those that I don't recall immediately. The biggest benefit of all is that I began to recognize the major themes in the Bible. Besides reading the Bible in this way during those years, my favorite way of studying the Bible has been to use a good concordance like Young's or Strong's and a good cross-reference system found in better editions of the Bible. It's, parenthetically, I'll add, it's even easier to study this way now, of course, because of all the online tools. These tools, the Concordance, Young's and Strong's, and Cross-Reference System, helped me to discover themes, and to see how they are developed throughout the scripture. In this way, I came to the realization that there were important subjects about which I knew little or nothing. While at Waite Park, I began to discover that the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. Of course, I would read and heard that pre- phrase previously, but I would never given it much thought. I do remember one discussion in my Gospels class at CBC in which we talked about whether or not the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven meant the same thing. I don't remember that we came to any firm conclusion. If asked, I would have said that the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and saved from hell, which later I came to see was only one part, in one sense, even a benefit of the gospel rather than the whole gospel. As I was reading Acts 28 one day, I noticed that Paul, imprisoned in Rome, talked with Jews who came to him about the kingdom of God. A few verses later, I saw that when the Gentiles came to Paul, he also spoke with them about the kingdom of God. I had grown up in an environment where the assumptions of premillennial dispensationalism were givens. I'll discuss this more later. At the time, I hardly knew the term myself. However, according to these assumptions, the kingdom of God was something that had to do with the future, either with the Jews in the millennium or with the eternal kingdom in the age to come. So I began to wonder, why was Paul talking about the kingdom instead of primarily proclaiming the news need for these Jews and Gentiles to accept the Savior who would forgive their sins? For the first time, I took real note that both John the Baptist and Jesus called people to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. I remember that Jesus' parables most often open with these words, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus had even stated that if it was by the Spirit of God that he cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you, Matthew 12, 28. I saw that Jesus in the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension spoke about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. It was about that time that John Matthews, in the classic Compassion's Bible School, the morning that I had begun to pray in tongues, had pointed out that in Acts 17, the message that had turned the world upside down was that the apostles were undermining Caesar by declaring there is another king, Jesus. Then I looked more carefully at Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. Peter had explained the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues as signs that the last days had now begun. He declared that although his hearers had crucified Jesus in spite of God's testimony concerning him through miracles, wonders, and signs, God had raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the throne where the Father said, Sit and rule. Everything in Peter's sermon built up to this one statement. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36. And Peter ended his message with that declaration. The gospel message I began to comprehend is that Jesus is now the messianic king. Many of Peter's hearers were deeply convicted by this message that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. They cried out, what shall we do? Only then did Peter tell them to repent and to be baptized. He told them that their sins would be forgiven and that they would receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to share a footnote here that's pretty important. Although my understanding of this passage changed greatly at that time, I still did not comprehend Peter's final declaration fully. Like most English readers, I took the word Lord to mean that Jesus was in charge, he's the King, and I thought of the word Christ as a title referring to his divinity to the degree that I thought about these words at all. Much later, I realized that the word Christ is a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, and that Christos is the Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. Thus, Peter is declaring that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the son of David, the Christ, the anointed one, who God had promised would sit on King David's throne and fulfill God's promises to David and to Israel. On the other hand, since Peter was a Jew preaching to Jews, it's the word Lord that more likely speaks of Jesus' divinity, since Jews use the word Lord in place of God's covenant name, Yahweh, rather than take a chance on taking Yahweh's name in vain. End of the footnote. I had long before learned the Great Commission in this way. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But now I took notice of these verses that preceded and followed this statement. Jesus came near to them and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20 Jesus based the commission on these words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The commission was not based on a future kingdom, but rather on authority that Jesus had already received. And the commission, as I learned it, was incomplete. Jesus not only said, go make disciples and baptize, but he also said, teach them. In other words, teach those who are baptized to obey everything I've commanded you. This was the king's commission to his representatives, his ambassadors. With the commission, the king made a promise. Remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not just that at the end of the age he would come back, which of course he will, but that now, in this age, he already has all the authority in heaven and earth and promises to be with those he commissioned while they call all people and all nations to submit to his rule, to his authority, as long as this age lasts. Then, in John chapter 3, I discovered that the point of being born again was to see and to enter the kingdom of God. My attention was first drawn to this by Bob Mumford's teaching. As I meditated on Jesus' words to Nicodemus, I first began to get inklings that the way we had emphasized the new birth as a qualifier for getting us into heaven after we die was hindering us from seeing clearly what it means to live in Jesus' kingdom in this life. These insights were powerful. I knew I had to understand the gospel and proclaim it differently. However. I did not realize that God was making foundational changes in my basic assumptions about the world and the purposes of God. I had no idea that it would take years for me even to begin to get my mind around these changes and their implications. It was a journey that I'm on to this day. At that time, I did not set my. I did set my heart and mind. At that time, I did set my heart and mind to seek first, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Even while I was seeing the central message of the gospel as the kingdom of God, I was also discovering that Jesus was not looking for converts but disciples, those who would follow Him, patterning their life after His. I saw that it was from among the larger group of disciples that Jesus chose twelve whom he called apostles, those sent on a specific mission. Upon further study of the Great Commission given to the eleven apostles after Judas' death, I found that there was one primary command and three participial phrases that elucidated that command. Jesus actually said, As you are going, make disciples baptizing them, teaching them. I discovered in Acts that believers were those who became disciples and that the name Christian came later. Probably it was a derisive label coined by the opponents. Acts eleven nineteen to 26 It seemed important to reemphasize that we believers are to be those who actually follow Jesus, who are actually learning to think like him and to act like Him. After I received the insight into the passage about the gift of tongues in 2 Corinthians, the understanding that my thinking had to change grew. I began to see fresh implications in Romans 12, 1 and 2. In this passage, Paul exhorts us that the only reasonable response to God's grace in Christ is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice of worship. This means that our behavior is to be transformed, not aligned with the world system, but aligned with God's will. This alignment will come about through the renewing of our minds. I gave a teaching several times in those days that I titled, See, A New View. Little did I know that I was beginning to wrestle with issues that I would later come to know and teach as Biblical worldview even before the words world and view had been combined into a single compound word. At Way Park, I also first began to become acquainted with the idea of Christian community and developed an interest to know more. I read about Jesus People Communes in California. I became interested in the Love In community, the community in Freeville, New York where the Scott Ross Show was produced. The history of that community, which I heard on a cassette tape, had a big impact on me. I heard about Reba Place Fellowship in Chicago, and also about the group that came to be called Sojourners, as well as others. The fact is that the seeds of most of the kingdom realities that I've spent my life trying to understand and to live were sown and or germinated in that year and a half in Wake Park Wesleyan Church. Although Wake Park moved back toward its comfortable traditions not long after we moved away, we were blessed to be there at a unique time when the atmosphere was alive with godly love, spiritual hunger, and biblical revelation. Under Pastor Hauser's leadership, God brought together a number of people who were seeking the Lord with all their hearts. It was the most seminal period in my life. Wycliffe missionary Wayne Huff and his wife Alice came to speak at Wake Park's annual missions conference in May 1973. Wayne's wife, had worked in Guatemala for several years. However, because one of their children had a serious learning disability, the Huffs were working in the States as recruiters for Wycliffe. I was impressed with Wayne's sincere love for the Lord and his open heart toward the work of the Holy Spirit. Meeting the Huffs made me think again about missions and about the mission of Wycliffe Bible Translators. I had not thought much about Wycliffe since leaving Marion, where I had studied under Russ Cooper and had met Dr. John Crawford. In October 1973, Patricia and I, along with our baby Elijah, went back to Ohio to see our parents. My dad helped us pay for the trip by offering me the chance to help him work on a house that he and Mom were remodeling. During that week, as I worked with Dad, I think he became convinced that positive changes in me, starting with my repentance from rebellion, were genuinely taking place. We had good fellowship with one another. I did not tell him about the moving of the Spirit at Wake Park because I knew he was strongly opposed to the tongues movement, believing it to be a deception. I returned to Minneapolis rejoicing that healing had begun in my relationship with Dad. Everywhere I turned those days, God seemed to feed the hunger in me to seek his kingdom and to be a part of what he was doing in the earth in my generation. Between Christmas and the New Year holiday, Jay Swisher and I took a number of the Waite Park youth to Urbana 73, which was InterVarsity's mission conference, held at the campus of the University of Illinois. This conference was held every three years. That year, approximately 16,000 young people gathered. The speakers included Paul E. Little, John R. W. Stott, Edmund P. Clowney, Samuel Escobar, and Elizabeth Elliott. The message of David Howard, brother of Elizabeth Elliott, spoke to me most. Howard had been working as a missionary in Costa Rica and Colombia and was the director of Urbana 73. He told about how his eyes had been opened to the work of the Holy Spirit and to building communities of faith through the work of God in Colombia. Gregorio Landero, a leader of the church in Colombia, accompanied Howard. Landero's testimony concerning God's work among his own people made a deep impact on me. I was also stirred by hearing Scott Ross speak at a workshop. His assigned topic was media, but his message fed my hunger to know God and to find his kingdom, and to find community. After a cold, cold drive, about minus 20 outside, in an uninsulated van with only a front-end heater, we arrived back home about midnight on New Year's Eve, just as the New Year's Eve service was ending at Way Park. Soon after greeting me, Patricia told me that Joe Johnson would be calling me about 1230 a.m.